2: Just over a year ago, almost everyone, it seemed, was in agreement about the origins of COVID-19. It came from bats and then spread to humans.
0: One thing scientists do agree on is that there is little chance this virus was released as the result of a laboratory
2: accident. But then sometime this spring, that shifted. Let's be clear, so far efforts to discover the natural source of COVID-19 have failed. So let's look at the laboratory leak theory in a bit more detail. The so-called lab leak theory, left the world of the conspiracy theorists and it entered the realm of respectable conversation. The head of the WHO said all possible causes of the pandemic still remain on the table. (laughs) Scientists started calling for an investigation and so too did the American president. President Biden is calling on the intelligence community to step up its efforts to figure out the origins of COVID-19. But of course science has its own politics.
0: China's foreign ministry hit back at the United States on Thursday after US President Joe Biden ordered a review of intelligence about the origins of COVID-19. And in
2: China today, there's no search for answers about the origins of COVID-19 that doesn't itself raise even more questions. Oh my God, there's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. It's the Chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. So how did COVID-19 begin? And in fact, what does the search for the origins of COVID tell us about China today? What does it tell us about its relationship with the World Health Organization? What does it tell us about its responsibility to the rest of the world? What does it tell us about its relationship with the truth? Hello, and welcome to The China Problem, a think-in with me, James Harding. Perhaps the biggest question of the year, perhaps the biggest question of our times, and that's quite a claim, is how did the pandemic begin? It's odd to think that something that's affected so many of us is understood by so few of us. And in the context of this thinking, in the context of the China problem, it's perhaps an extraordinary statement about Xi Jinping's China that we don't have any idea what really happened in the city of Wuhan at the end of 2019 but then spilled across the world through the course of 2020. To help me understand that question, not just how to handle China, but whether we can trust it, I'm joined by Tom Wright, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and co-author of the new book, Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order.
3: Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Does that sound good?
2: I'm also joined by Deb Seligson, assistant professor at Villanova University, and previously was Environment, Science, Technology and Health Counselor at the US Embassy in Beijing during SARS, and by Ray Zhong, Programme Associate at the Wilson Center's China Programme.
0: I'm from Wuhan.
2: (laughs) Are you really? And a native of Wuhan. With their help, I'm going to try and get a better understanding of what to think. Ray Zhong, if I might, I'm going to start with you. You were born in Wuhan, grew up in Wuhan, do you trust the story that's come out of Wuhan?
0: So in terms of what's happened in Wuhan, I would say there are two major pieces. First is accountability by the government to its constituents in the city of Wuhan in the province of Hubei, which suffered a 76-day lockdown and a good chunk of the people that have died from COVID-19. I would say that fundamentally the key piece of information that the government sat on in the winter of 2020 was the human-to-human transmission, which was the information that branded a lot of healthcare providers as, you know, rumor mongerers. You know, they might be considered whistleblowers to us now, but at the time they were initially disciplined. So the question of whether they've become more transparent or not is is a big question. And you know, in the aftermath, there's also the question of accountability.
2: So, so just to so understand, you're saying there's a question which is, were they honest about human to human transmission, and were they honest about their own accountability in the running of the lockdown?
0: Yes, the the accountability to you know doctors and uh, healthcare practitioners. Uh, what happens in typical Chinese lockdowns, even in 2021, is very little. Uh, lead time for people to prepare to go into lockdown, uh, casting a wide net in terms of testing, but then information, uh, how it's released, how people are informed, it varies from province to province, even this late in the game.
2: Uh, and Rachel, I suppose I'm struck by the fact that you put human to human transmission as one of the first issues. It, it would tell us a little bit about possibly how the virus moved but not that fundamental question of where it started. And I suppose the biggest question that people have is lab leak or natural transfer. And do you have any suspicion about the possibility that it emerged from the Wuhan Institute for, for Virology?
0: Well, at the risk of sounding very disappointing, I can't tell you right. because uh, it's not my field of expertise. And also the process of finding the origins, even from you know people who are specialists in epidemiology, it takes a long time, even with the ideal conditions of transparency. And there is not, there's not a whole lot of transparency from, from the Chinese government in this respect.
2: Deb Seligson, can I, can I ask you about this? Perhaps, let's start not with COVID-19, but with SARS, because if I'm right, you were in the embassy in Beijing, the United States embassy in Beijing, What's the experience of being a U.S. official trying to get to the truth of what doctors know, what government officials know when there is an outbreak like SARS? What was your experience, what is now, 15 odd years ago?
3: So, so, I mean, I think the big point is that it was radically different than what we saw with COVID. Because with COVID, there was a phone call between George Gao, the head of the China CDC, and Redfield, the head of the U.S. CDC, on January 3rd. I was incredibly prompt. You know, With SARS, it took months to get that kind of information. And part of that, of course, was that people in the southern province of Guangdong were hiding information from the central government. So it took months for it to get to the central government. Then there was even hiding within Beijing from the central government, although that... It was closer, so it took less time for the government to break that open. But the desire for provincial officials to show they've solved the problem before they tell the center is sort of a basic problem. And, you know, this isn't a China problem. I mean, we have cover-ups of diseases all over the world. And sometimes it works. I've been reliably told that from CDC friends that there are outbreaks in other countries that we— never hear about that they're sure happened, because if you actually can suppress it, you save yourselves a big economic hit. But for SARS, it was months, and it really took huge pressure from the WHO. But that's the big difference to me of the problem with the U.S. response this time compared to SARS, is that we had 40 U.S. CDC people on the ground during SARS because they all came in on WHO international passports. And they were the backbone of the WHO um, technical assistance. And without a good relationship with WHO in a crisis, the U.S. doesn't have a great deal because.
2: So, so sorry, Deb. Forgive me of for interrupting because I just want to make sure I'm following your train right. You're saying, okay, actually, in January 2020, the U.S.-China scientific relationship was much more functional on COVID than it had been on SARS. Correct. What was much more dysfunctional was the U.S. multilateral relationship, the U.S. WHO relationship. So when Redfield got that information from Gao, he couldn't act on it.
3: Well, he could could act on it domestically and they didn't. Our great tragedy is our own. We had all the information we needed by the 1st of January and we utterly and completely failed. And we know that because countries like Australia did fine and we could have acted like Australia. We're a robust democracy like they are, but we've discovered our own dysfunction. But I do you think that the COVID situation is way different than the SARS situation. I actually disagree with Ray on what the story was in December of 2019. I think there was massive confusion in Wuhan. And when we look at how long it took doctors in Milan and then in New York to recognize that they had an outbreak, basically months in both cases, from their first cases, and they already knew what the disease was called. Is
2: is there, I suppose, Deb, I'm trying to get to this question of whether or not the world is going to be able to work with China if there's not a trustworthy counterpart. The world I grew up in in the 90s, where we were quite optimistic about bringing China into the World Trade Organization, bringing China into the international order, that's, if you like been proven an example of wishful thinking because China won't respect simple things like empiricism, facts, well, discovery,
3: that's of the truth. So, I- not, so first of all, in the last several weeks, so much data has come out on Co- on coronaviruses, things that are very helpful to origins, a huge study of which animals were in the markets, big studies looking at where the closest coronaviruses are. The nearest relative now has popped up in Laos, actually. Um, so I think, you so, know, Deb, just the- a,
2: you, you don't you don't attribute any anything much to the lab leak theory on uh, I
3: don't attribute much to the lab leak theory, nor do I think that the Chinese knew that there was asymptomatic transmission But before late January. I think that was very difficult to determine. It took a, lo- a long time during SARS. These things are tough because the signals are difficult. And what I was trying to say is the signals are particularly difficult because the most of the people that die are elderly people with pneumonia pulling the signal out from the noise is actually tough and then there's pretty good evidence that the chinese actually had a bad test just like we did in the us so when they switched from a symptomatic case definition to using a pcr test it looks like they lost several weeks and they lost several weeks exactly during the weeks when the when the the rapid rise was happening. So it it, I think they had a lot of challenges. They had some bureaucratic challenges as well. I gather there was a fight over who was going to pay for these big hospitals and the quarantine facilities. We still have that kind of problem in the U.S. But the idea that they're not viable partners if we would act with respect and diplomatically, instead of demanding things, and the WHO always tries to act diplomatically because it doesn't have the right to storm into any country, large or small. But we need to work together, and we need to work in partnership with the WHO.
2: I just want to bring Tom Wright in at this stage. Tom, I, 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 I wanted to get to the to the argument of your book. Aftershocks and this uh, the possibility of a fundamental breakdown in, in the international order. Explain how you think the pandemic has played and the way in which the US and China are going to understand themselves as a result of it.
4: Yeah, no, thanks, um, James. And, you know, I'd be interested in Deb's sort of view in this too, because I think... You know it's important I think just to get a baseline in terms of you know what happened at the beginning because I think it does tell us about where we can go in the future but from from my um, from my perspective and you know Deb is right there obviously in the middle of it in, in SARS but after SARS China put in place a lot of reforms you know strengthened the Chinese CDC had a lot of measures to ensure greater sort of transparency more rapid communication of data from sort of the provinces to central authorities. These were reforms that were meant to mean SARS could never sort of happen again, or something like that, that response would never happen again. And of course, China also played a pretty significant role, you know, modest, but increasing in with the international community and sending delegations led by George Gao to other, to other sort of missions in the 2010s. And, and what we found was that basically, a couple of years before the pandemic, a lot of that began to sort of erode. You know, there was this standoff over the sharing of information with the WHO on H7N9. There was the embassy officials who succeeded Deb, I think, in her position, who were professionals to the servants, just found it more difficult to engage with China. I think they probably also found it more difficult as the relationship, you know, deteriorated on each side. And so that brought us to sort of December, you know, 2019. And I, I think the most salient thing for me is that yes, there was all this confusion. Um, but, you know, George Gao apparently found out about it from social media on December 30th or December 31. So something really didn't work there. Now we can attribute a lot of that to the confusion and the fog of battle or whatever. But it is also true that in early January, all of the interlocutors for you know Western officials, including Gao. But right throughout, you know, the sector in Beijing really couldn't say anything, you know, to their Western counterparts and not just the U.S. counterparts. So all those lines ran cold. And then Xi Jinping did take over, you know, in early January. I'm forgetting the date, but I think we now sort of know it was around January 7th. And that was a point where they could have sort of opened up. But instead, it was a reversion exactly right back to SARS, except probably worse. So repression you know, intimidation, the sharing of the sequencing of the genome was taken unilaterally by a Chinese scientist with an Australian-based scientist in defiance of a government order. So they were, you know, refusing to share information. They were quite secretive. Now, the reason I think that all matters is because as we sort of look forward, and, you know, they obviously were difficult with the WHO throughout and including, you know, this past few months, with the WHO investigation that went in, in January. So I think that to me, the big lesson is, is that we can't count on the cooperation that we would need to get significant reforms at the WHO. And if we do get some of them, they may not stick. And so I, I think absolutely the US should engage in the WHO, absolutely the US should try to work with China, but we also need a backup plan if that fails. And we should sort of assume that it's a high likelihood you know, it will fail because I don't get any sense from Beijing that there's the, the sort of a stock taking that they believe they made mistakes as they sort of did after SARS and that they need to be corrected.
2: Can, can I just ask you, and I'm going to come back to Deb and Ray in one minute, but can I ask you, there are two different explanations for what you describe. Either it's the confusion that Deb was talking about to begin with, i.e. this thing is unfolding, it's really hard to understand what's going on. It's understandably the case that you're going to have a certain degree of institutional defensiveness within hospitals and the medical profession, within Wuhan, within China itself, I there's domestic confusion. And there's a separate question, which is international non-cooperation, i.e. whether or not that once China began to understand the various possibilities of how COVID began and how it spreads, i.e. both the nature transfer and the lab leak theory, and also the impact of the asymptomatic transmission, that China was unkeen to share that information internationally. Which do you think it is? Do you think it's a domestic confusion issue or an international non-cooperation issue?
4: I mean, my own view is it was originally domestic confusion, but then it became repression and intimidation. I mean, I think we can't forget that step, right? That when When the central authorities and Xi Jinping did take personal charge, they weren't saying, oh, you know, there was all this confusion. Now we need to go back to the reforms and actually be transparent and reward the doctors who got it right and were calling it out. They arrested them and you know, or demoted them and 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 also were very sort of secretive. I mean, there's no doubt they were very scared also, right? So I, I'm not belittling that as a driver. Um, and then I think we also saw the lack of cooperation um, throughout January and really ever since. Now, there has been some more as we've gone on, but not sort of enough. And, and I guess that to me is sort of the takeaway that it is a, you know, I mean, the WHO said this too as well. I mean, they believed one of the reasons they were a little bit more, you know, flattering or a lot more than the WHO was in 03, is they worried that Xi Jinping will be much less tolerant of any type of criticism and that they really needed to, to try to be careful.
2: Let, let me just, I want, I'd love to hear from Ray and Deb on this. Ray, what do you think?
0: Well, the issue, and I keep going back to domestic spaces in China because they are affected most by Chinese governance. And the question is, are health authorities efficiently empowered to work in confidence knowing that they can do so without issue and this was a really really crucial question in january 2020 when health officials were like well if i say something that in the aftermath gets branded as politically sensitive what's going to happen to me as my career and personal safety going to be at risk this was a question that was really Introduced a lot of political risk to the CCP at that moment. However, in the aftermath in the spring, we had more social media crackdowns. We had uh, COVID numbers in China stabilized. We definitely saw COVID numbers in the United States spike. And this stabilized the sort of political security of the CCP. And in turn, they more or less took a tighter grip on what information came out and what how they would sort
2: of manage the information ray sorry can i just forgive me for interrupting but just to understand what you're saying is that by the spring summer of 2020 as a narrative started to take hold that the chinese communist party was on top of what was happening with covid inside china and the u.s was failing to get on top of it the chinese government itself was incentivized to be more repressive, more controlling around information is that what you're saying
0: it was incentivized to paint China's relative successes, and there were successes. The numbers yeah. did go down. However, you know the trans- overall transparency of how they handled COVID in the medium to long term is a question, just as the transparency in the United States of how we're handling COVID right now is a big question. We're seeing states, for example, pass laws and policies that uh, make it harder for healthcare providers that at least 16 states have had their health official power limited. We've had limited vaccine rules. We have limited mask mandates. And we've even seen states sue institutions that enact mask mandates. And this is over a year into COVID.
2: So so you're so you're saying you're saying, Ray, that what we're talking about is a pattern in the US and in China center versus provinces rather than or center versus states rather than just a US China. I just want to pursue that for a second. Ray, is that what you're saying is that the pattern that you saw between Wuhan and Beijing is not so different from the pattern that you might see between DC and some of the, you know, low vaccination rate states in the US?
0: I would say so because there is always political incentives that politicians might have that might differ from the public health consequences because they might want to get back to work. They might want children to go back to school, but that might not be the best thing in terms of COVID numbers and in terms of what's best for healthcare providers. Because speaking frankly, healthcare providers are at their wits end in the United States right now, and this cannot be underemphasized.
2: Ray, thank you. I'm, as you're speaking, all I'm watching is Deb in the middle of my screen nodding and smiling and nodding and smiling. Deb, y- y- Your point is that it's, well, tell, tell, tell us what you make of that. Well,
3: my point is that large countries act like large countries. And I found as an American diplomat, often if I thought, what would the US do in this circumstance, I could think about how China would behave internationally. And the big difference between 2003 and now, is that China is much richer and more powerful than it was back when. So, of course, they're going to be sensitive to international criticism. And, of course, the WHO is going to have to act diplomatically. But, I mean, has the WHO demanded to inspect Texas for what the heck is going on? I mean, they wouldn't dare. And so...
2: There there is a point here, which is your expectations of transparency in Texas are completely different to your expectations of transparency in Hubei. We
3: have four or five states that are no longer reporting um, COVID information. I don't know what my expectation of transparency is in the United States because it's gotten really terrible. But let's, let's be basic. China is an autocracy. Right, it, it has a different information system than the United States. I am absolutely not saying it doesn't. I am saying that there was a real opportunity to work with China. The first WHO team that went in actually produced an incredibly valuable 100-plus page report. They had phase two plans. And the fact that they continued to be accused of lab leak with no evidence... Um, instead of allowing the science, which as Ray correctly pointed out, takes years and years and years, it took 14 years to figure out the origins of SARS, that instead of allowing the science to proceed at the rather slow and meticulous pace of science, a lot of people have found it advantageous to, you know, bash China in the in the public media. I would also say two things about Chinese scientists. One is China is not one thing. China is many things. I mean, it's the provinces and it's the central government, but it's also a scientific establishment that is deeply intertwined with the US scientific establishment. George Gao really values those relationships and I've continued to see him speaking on seminars in the United States throughout COVID. And one of the other problems is that the incentives within the Chinese system now are a publish and perish system where the Chinese scientists want peer reviewed publications. And they often will hold on to data until they can get it to the quality of peer reviewed As in the United States, there were a lot of bureaucratic reasons why things didn't work perfectly. And so, for example, when the WHO team went to China, they didn't see this data from all the animal markets, which then popped up in a very prestigious scientific journal like three weeks later. And they were rather frustrated by that. That wasn't some government plot. That was a scientist trying to get his publication for tenure or whatever. There are lots of different incentives going on. And, Viewing China as China, when we all understand the deep complexity and the human interactions in our own countries, is always problematic.
2: So I just want to, I want to ask Tom what you think of this, because there's a slight risk, I think, Tom, that the sum of all of this, academic incentives, bureaucratic defensiveness, regional center tensions, fast-moving pandemic and confusion, that we come to a stuff happens conclusion. There are many people who would say that's not what we're dealing with at all here. We're actually seeing revealed that even when you bring China into the international system, when you bring a one-party state into the international system, it has, as Deb said, a very different information culture. And the result is it's going to be very hard to do business as the world becomes more complex with a country that seeks to manipulate and manage its information in that way. Do, do you think that is a fair critique of the relationship between West and East.
4: Yeah, I guess I have a less benign sort of interpretation than Deb and Ray on on some of this. I mean, I think that there definitely, of course, is this confusion and bureaucracy and it's a big, you know, country and lots of different things going on. But I, I think there are certain things that are also, you know, true. And one of them is that the government and the leader, you know, of China did have a pretty obstructionist sort of role of the WHO uh, and internally, in- including against those who were sort of blowing the whistle on what was happening early on. And in what's happened since, unlike in the United States, because it is authoritarian, there's been no sort of sign of a major rethink or attempt to try to correct course. I mean, here there was an election a person was elected who was deeply critical of what the previous person had done and was committed to to reforms and changes. Now, those might be good, they might be bad, but there is a mechanism, you know, there. So I I think it is, um, and, you know, just on the WHO, you know, piece of it, the PIAC, the Public Health Emergency International Concern, that was delayed because of lobbying from China. There was the positions on the travel ban, of course, and the pressures they were putting on at a time when they had travel restrictions internally, so lots of things happened, I think, that give rise for significant concerns. I worry that we are entering into a world where the WHO and global public health is now a zone of contestation between the major powers in a way that the UN was after World War II, right? So after World War II, we had the UN It was meant to bring countries together, but it just became the venue for disagreements. I think we're seeing that sort of the geopolitics of global public health now and I'm not saying the US is on the right side of this all the time obviously what the Trump administration did last year in trying to pull out of the WHO in the middle of a pandemic was grossly sort of irresponsible to me it's an analytical mistake to draw an equivalence just between bureaucratic problems and what happened in China I think there's more intent there from Xi Jinping.
2: Deb you want to come back in?
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, there are a couple of things. First of all, I'm not saying this world that we've entered is easier. I think it's harder. It's just we didn't have the choice of whether China was going to be a big part of the international system. China is very big. It's very...
2: Deb, yes, we did. Yes, we absolutely did have a choice. In fact, we encouraged it to become part of the international system.
3: Well, we we encouraged it to become rather... Well, I... So let's, if I'm thinking in international relations terms, it's going to be part of the system whether we include it in the liberal international order or not. And so if we didn't want a purely confrontational system, we needed to create venues for interaction.
1: Ready to pop the question?
4: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: The reason I, I think this is so significant is there was a line of thinking, or at least it felt to me there was, through the 80s into the 90s and the early 2000s, which was, let's bring China into the international system, not just in international relations terms, but into you know the global marketplace. The liberalisation of China, reform and opening up, will be good for the Chinese people and it will be good for the world. And I suppose the, the reason I want to ask about the pandemic in particular, is have we discovered that China's approach to information is such that it doesn't really have the same attitude to facts, it doesn't really have the same attitude to the rule of law, it doesn't have those same things, and we need to fundamentally change the way in which we engage with China.
3: So so there are a couple things. First of all, as I said, they were going to be part of the international order, whether we chose to try to cooperate with them or not. So I, I don't think you're presenting the choice correctly. We can go through a very realist system where we don't think about the institutions as mattering and China would, would be significant. What we hope with, a, with institutions is to have ways to mediate it, and Tom's perfectly right that sometimes those become areas for conflict, but if we can have conflict through voting at the UN rather than actually going to war, life is better. But I think our fundamental problem right now is that we're not dealing with China issue by issue. And I actually think there's room to work with the Chinese constructively on both public health and the environment where there's far less room in a number of other issue areas. Viruses were going to emerge in China regardless of whether it was participating in the WHO or not. It's a large country with many people and so many animals, right? Viruses emerge elsewhere as well, Zika in South America, Nipah in Bangladesh. You know, the 1918 flu pandemic may have started in Kansas. So I think what we're losing track of in this conversation is we have two jobs right now. The first is we've got to vaccinate the world and the Chinese are an important producer of vaccines. Secondly, we actually do need an effective coronavirus surveillance strategy throughout Asia, right? We've had SARS, COVID, we had MERS emerge in the Middle East. We know there are a ton of these bats and viruses in Southeast Asia. The reason the closest relative was in Yunnan is not because Yunnan is likely to be the closest relative, but because it was oversampled. So we need to actually be working constructively. And we can only do that if we start thinking about where there are possible inroads into China. And yes, they have a very different view of rule of law. I don't actually think they have a different view of facts. I mean, the folks with the different view of facts are the QAnon folks in the U.S. They have a different political system. That doesn't mean there are no opportunities.
2: Thank you. Ray?
0: So uh, I do want to point out that there is a conspiracy theory in uh, Chinese information circles uh, that has been encouraged semi-officially that uh, the United States was the origin of COVID-19 and brought it to China through military exercise games. Having said that, the virus does not actually care about which states are you know, participating in multilateral systems in a way that is pleasing to the U.S. or the U.K. or to Australia or whatever, in terms of the COVID pandemic we are in now, this is not going to be an issue that gets resolved if states A, B, and C act right and states D, E, and F just do their own thing. The lack of vaccines to the global south particularly has effectively slowed down the whole world's emerging from the virus. And so in terms of making sure that, you know, China is doing certain things on a lab leak, I mean, yeah, sure, like they need greater transparency. However- It
2: won't make a difference to the real world outcomes now.
0: It's not a concrete factor in how Chinese people, to which their government is accountable, how well they're doing, and how well, you know, public health as a whole is
2: doing. Ray, thank you. Tom, you wanted to come back in, and then I've got a question, really, for all three of you. Tom.
4: I I just think that Deb raised an important point about working with China on shared issues. You know, the Biden administration has a pretty tough line on China, but they've tried to do that. And, you know, they sent a Deputy Secretary of State to China. They sent John Kerry to China. He got a Zoom meeting. You know, Wendy Sherman went and was treated very poorly and you know, found it very difficult to get any meetings. And then on a recent call between Xi and Biden, Biden sort of offered to work on these issues, what they called existential issues, mainly, you know, global public health and environmental, you know, and the Chinese response is what it has been all year, which is, well, before we work on those, you have to change the conditions of the relationship and stop pushing us on Taiwan and Hong Kong and Xinjiang and everything else. And we can't cooperate on shared problems until you change those conditions. So the reason why there's a difficulty here, I mean, pretty much everyone in the US and in, in uh, and the Allies want to try to separate things out into different compartments, but Beijing doesn't wanna do that. And so that's the issue. Um, and I think it's, it, it, to me, it will be a mistake to sort of assume it's, it's just like a bigger India. There is a geopolitical thing here, which is, On both sides but on their side is you know pretty deliberate and I just can't see them you know agreeing and then sticking to significant reforms on transparency in particular on the WHO and that is not to say we shouldn't try to work with them it is to say that we should be prepared to work without them if necessary in the future.
2: Deb what do you make of that?
3: Well, I I think the big issue they were pushing on was the tariffs, which, of course, hurt American consumers, at least as much as they hurt Chinese producers. So um, it's been a little bit of a surprise that the Biden administration hasn't been willing to move on that at all. But I think, you know, at the same time as we were doing that, we had this intelligence review of the origins, which everybody knew from the beginning was going to be utterly useless because science is science and you don't have a bunch of intelligence analysts figuring out the origins of a virus. And then they came out with this very weak report that would have been fine. And then Biden came out with a much stronger statement. I don't think that kind of thing is helpful. And so I don't think right now the big challenge is Transparency, qua transparency. I think the challenge is working with them on concrete external facing issues, of which the vaccines is the number one. But I would also say coronavirus surveillance. And I'm just not as pessimistic because. Of the extraordinary success of influenza um, surveillance, which has continued and grown over 40 years, and where China became a key part of the system, I agree with Tom that that we let our relationship lag badly during the Trump administration. So Biden is starting from a really low point. You know, most of the US government health personnel were pulled out of China during the Biden administration.
4: That's, that's not true deb though no, that that's not i, I mean, mean during the trump no, but administration. it's not true it's not true it Dave. is they weren't they weren't pulled out yeah they were there was there was 12 people who were pulled out because of pepfar but there was dozens of people including the people working in infectious disease i mean we No, in, there were a,
3: they, we went from a dozen cdc to about two
4: there was there was no there was between 11 and 13 cdc People working in infectious disease on in in the embassy in Beijing in most Jersey, of those
3: on. were local staff. Most of the actual U.S. assignees. There were two Reuters articles about it, and I had actually written about it in the Washington Post prior to that. Yeah. So they were mostly gone. It's just not true.
2: It's not- so. Deb, could you just step back? Just just step back from this because because I appreciate that that the, the disagreement you're having there is is substantive. But I just want to step back because. The conversation that we're having here epitomizes why I find this so difficult. Because on the one hand, Deb, I really want your approach to be right. I really want to say, look, let's go back to a diplomacy that is respectful, pragmatic, and selective of the issues where real progress can be made. Right, And I'm nervous of, if you like, the... Positioning of China as obstructionist, repressive, intimidating, and that we get ushered into a posture that is hostile to China. And so, if you like, we end up losing areas of cooperation um, as a result of that. On the other hand, I have to say, I think Tom's version of things is pretty compelling, which is you know what? China wants us, wants the West to back off issues such as Hong Kong. Taiwan, Xinjiang. And we certainly don't want to see the West backing off those things. If anything, you want a more assertive Western policy on all of those three issues. And if that makes it impossible to do business with China, well, then so be it. And so this is why I find the issue so so difficult. I'd like to see a more constructive engagement, but it seems harder and harder to deliver. So I want to hear from you, Deb, and then I'm gonna come back to, to you, Tom, to, to hear what you make of that.
3: I'm, I am not Persuaded that we're going to have a great deal of influence on those issues. They're horrible, but that doesn't mean that we're able to do much about them. Um, we have existential issues, right? That's what Biden was talking about. And those include um, pandemic disease and they include climate change. And so I'm not convinced that this is easy or short term or that we will always get results. But I am convinced that if we don't try, we certainly won't get results. And if the if we are just uniformly hostile to China on all fronts, we will have a worse world with. And I don't see where the benefits are.
4: Tom? I, I think I don't, I don't want to. Okay, you know, character what Deb is saying, but I think there is a view and I think some people are of it that these issues of climate and pandemics are so important that the geopolitical ones ought to take second priority to those. Right. And we have to reach out and say, what do you, you know how do we work together on that, um, on these things and, and not completely abandon the positions on the others? sort of play them down. And that was sort of John Kerry's sort of view as well, right? I, I don't think that's going to work. Uh, firstly, I think abandoning those positions, particularly on Taiwan and on the broader regional security, I mean, Hong Kong and Xinjiang are a little different because the possibility of influence is limited for obvious reasons, but I think it would be catastrophic. I don't think we would get the cooperation you know, we're looking for. And I think it's a ploy by them to see how much leverage they can exert.
2: So, what's, so, so Tom, what's your prescription then?
4: Well, two parts. I think one saying we're perfectly willing and very eager to work on these issues, but we will separate them out from the rest of the relationship. So we will work on them no matter how bad the others get. And then to be prepared um, to have a, a backup plan if that doesn't work, right? So in the book, we propose a global alliance of pandemic preparedness of like-minded countries that would adhere to higher standards of transparency and provision of global public goods and cooperation um, that would operate in parallel. It wouldn't undermine the WHO because it would just be countries doing more. But in a future pandemic, those countries could act together and maybe even, you know, impose pressure on countries that are that are laggards or not are not doing enough at that moment in time. So we think that's a, you know, it's not perfect but it is compatible with full engagement in the WHO mm-hmm. and also with continuing to try to work with China.
2: Ray, help me out here. I can see the arguments on both sides. Where do you come down?
4: Well, I
0: don't have a lot of expertise on health multilaterals, but what I will say is is this. I'm going to give you four names. They are Zhang Zhen, Chen Shi, Chen Mei and Tsai Wei. Two of them are citizen journalists. Two of them were collecting Chinese language articles and reporting on a GitHub. And they are individuals who are Chinese and who have been working very courageously to try to archive information, which was then deemed politically sensitive. And all four are either under surveillance or prosecuted. And I also want to read a quote from Arkansas State Senator Trent Gardner. He said, what the people of Arkansas want is the decision to be left in their hands. It's time to take the power away from the so-called experts whose ideas have been woefully inadequate in order to ban mask mandates from his state. So in terms of the specific issue of the COVID-19 pandemic, how local officials are interacting with the risks politically of intransparency, I think that is still a really essential connecting thread because it impacts the safety of, you know, media, of investigators and uh, ultimately of respective states' constituents in both China and the United States.
2: Deb, I I want to give you the last word on this. What would you do if you had one minute with the President Joe Biden to advise him on how to engage in China?
3: Focus on vaccines right now. Put the rest of it aside. Let's get the world vaccinated. Tom's idea of some alternate organization, the WHO has already been badly undermined by a lot of um, the sort of the way the funding works, mostly on individual projects rather than their budget and other things. And the The thought experiment I'd like everybody to give is the U.S. has been one of the absolute worst performers on COVID. Can you imagine any group, whether it's the WHO or some new like-minded group led by the U.S., the new coalition of the willing, as it were, actually putting pressure on the U.S. to become a better actor on international pandemic? We are one of the generators of the problem here.
2: So... Deb, thank you very much. Tom and Ray, thank you very much. The, the way thinking works is at the end of it, I try to come away with a clearer sense of what to think. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do exactly that today, but I'll tell you. I'll tell you two thoughts I have, which are really have been really striking. One is I think that understanding that it can be both um, a mix of organisational mess, i.e academic incentives that you mentioned, Deb, the sort of, you know, lack of confidence in the healthcare system that you talked about, Ray, some of the, you know, regional defensiveness or bureaucratic inertia, that that organisational mess in the country can be combined with a culture that is repressive and is intimidatory. As you mentioned, Tom, and, 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 and Ray, your reference to those journalists who've been silenced, suggests to me that there is a simple point here, which is, it can be both things. It can be a textured understanding of China that explains how these things happened and the culture of the Chinese Communist Party that worked together. So I think there's an element there. I suppose the bit that I part company with you a bit, Deb, and Ray, I I suppose, is a little on the sort of people in glass houses argument, which is, yes, I definitely think that we need to look at transparency in some states in the United States, but that doesn't necessarily address or explain away the problem of how you engage with China. And And I suppose you can hear, Deb, the issue that I've got is that I'm moving from a position which is emotionally and historically really close to yours, which is let's get on with some respectful diplomatic engagement to a realization that some of the issues that are true of Xi Jinping's China that weren't true of, you know, Deng Xiaoping's or, you know, Jiang Zemin's or Hu Jintao's China mean that you can't just hope to have an a la carte diplomacy with China and pick and choose. And if you are going to stand strong around Taiwan, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and some of these other issues, it is going to be harder to make progress. I appreciate that tariffs is in its own bracket. But that's the that's, I suppose, the drift. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs> I see you see you sort of nodding resignedly at that. But that's, <laughs> that's where I land. So thank you, Tom, for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Deb, for your time. And, and Ray as well.
0: Thanks for having us. It's
2: been really good talking to you. In all honesty, I've come into all of these conversations with a certain hope that we could go back to the kind of US-China relationship that I was used to in the 1990s. But I suspect you've come to the same conclusion as me. That's simply not available. The relationship is more complicated. It's more contested. It's a hard, difficult truth, a real problem. But I really am grateful to Deb and to Tom and to Ray for helping me to see it more clearly. Because over the course of these thinkings, we're trying to come a better understanding of how we deal with China, how we understand and respond to the China problem. So I hope you'll continue to listen in by subscribing to this podcast. But better yet, you can join us. You can become a part of our newsroom here at Tortoise. We're not only a slow newsroom, we're an open one. We want to hear what you think. You can become a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend. And then if you use my code, James15, J-A-M-E-S 15 james S -S five zero, you get 50% off. You then get access to all of our journalism, all of our podcasts, and our live thinkings, and it's there at those live thinkings that we try and make sense of the news of the day. So thank you for listening. Thank you, as I said, to Deb and Tom and Ray as well. And thank you to the people who really made this podcast happen. This episode was produced by Morgan Childs, Clitzy Sala and Katie Gunning. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. And these podcasts, Thinking with James Harding, are like all our podcasts produced by Tauta Studios.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh onecom
1: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: That's run by Kerry Thomas and Basha Cummings. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again.